I'm going to take a little time and introduce a theme for our practice these next four days. There's an important place in practice for uh, where Saida Utejaniya, this well-known Burmese monk and meditation teacher, calls right information or good information. So there is a place to think and to um, ask questions, to reflect on what it is we are doing. How do we do that? What is it that we actually want? And how do we get that? And that's really what the right information is about. One particular pithy statement from the Buddha, something that he came back to over and over again, was this very simple summary of what he, what his teachings were about, suffering and the end of suffering or the experience of dissatisfaction, the experience of unsatisfactoriness, and the release of that, the ending of that. And it's so powerful, I think, for me at least, it's so powerful to be grounded in this work. You see, it really brings us right to the present moment. It's not suffering theoretically. It's this direct experience. Like, how is the heart now? How is the body, the mind now? And we're being asked, or we're being encouraged, to be interested in the experience of stress, in the experience of numbness, in the experience of impatience, or any subtle or not so subtle way that we might feel off. Now, if it was just that, it would be a little depressing. Like, we're just here to notice, to get interested in how the heart is burdened, how the mind is tight. But we're really interested in that movement between contraction and release. It's like, of all the many things we could be interested in in the world, we're distilling it. The Buddha is suggesting that we distill all of those interests all of that possibility to the moment-to-moment experience in the mind or heart of contraction or the release of contraction. And this is what we want to be a student. We want to be the best student we can be of contraction and release. So then that, if that's our aspiration, 
to understand contraction and the release, to understand suffering and its cessation. Then, then it clarifies like the skills that we'll need, like what actually supports seeing stress and the release of stress, or what supports understanding that seeing what we haven't seen about the, ex- the direct moment-to-moment experience of feeling dissatisfied and that moment-to-moment experience of being beyond dissatisfaction, feeling satisfied, feeling content. I mean, doesn't this seem to you right now to be relevant? But I bet, you know, I bet if we went around to you know, the people in the world who have a lot of power, a lot of intelligence, and uh, without any prep time, we went up to them and we, and we said, okay, you have 30 minutes, please tell me what you know about your direct experience of dissatisfaction or stress and your direct experience of release or the cessation of stress or dissatisfaction in the mind. I mean, wouldn't that be something if, if, you know, most people or a lot of people knew a lot about suffering and the end of suffering in this direct moment-to-moment way? And it, isn't it amazing that, because it seems to me to be the most relevant thing, isn't it amazing how rare it is and how even awkward it is to sort of have this interest or this expectation that this would be relevant? So tonight, um, you know, in terms of this basic theme that we'll be looking at over the next four nights, suffering and the end of suffering, this some, the way the Buddha summarized what his teachings were about. Tonight I thought we'd look uh, specifically at aspiration and right effort, because I think, especially on retreat, we can easily misunderstand what right effort is. And part of it is, you know, it's not easy to take the time off from work if you had to do that and get yourself here. And It's a huge effort. And then, so it just seems so appropriate that when we get here, the meditation practice and just being on retreat, that it should take this huge, big effort. And in some senses, that's true. But I think we often, I know personally, it so, has been so easy for me to misunderstand what the appropriate effort is in practice. And it relates, I think, there's a very um, important connection between wise effort 
and what our aspiration is, what we think we're doing, or what we think we want. And the more we understand our aspiration, the easier it is to understand right effort. And if we don't really understand what this is all about, it's easier to have wrong effort, basically effort that leads to suffering or leads to stress. Tomorrow night I'll talk more about dukkha, you know, just the direct experience of mental pain. And the interesting thing about this, just to give us all a heads up, knowing dukkha isn't dukkha. I mean, it is and it isn't. But to really know, to really understand the experience of mental stress, the mind needs to be balanced and have some resiliency, some equanimity, so that it's seen, but not getting caught in what it's seeing, not getting, in a sense, pulled in under the gravitational pull of that experience. So an, an easy example of this is like when we're angry, and then in a moment we know we're angry, well, knowing that we're angry isn't the same as being angry, being lost in the anger. So, being free of stress has something to do with understanding. It's the understanding of the different patterns of the mind that create stress that is liberating. Liberation, or the freedom, comes from understanding. So, if you think about this retreat, these four days, it's really easy to have these images of ourselves, like sitting without body pain, and without being tormented by, you know, thoughts about the past, or thoughts about the future, or doubt about, I don't know what I'm doing. But those kinds of ideas, you know, in terms of the aspiration, it's really uh, different variations of what we could call um, the aspiration to be perfect. You know, the aspiration not to be a human being, basically. If only I weren't a human being, an imperfect human being, if only I didn't have a human mind and a human body, then I could be happy. So I've come to this retreat in a deluded way, thinking I'll get beyond having a human mind and a human body, and then I'll be happy, because I won't be human. I'll be something else. And of course, it's totally ridiculous when we say it like that. So, initially we have to understand, we have to transform our idea of aspiration. It's not enough just to know that I'm suffering or I get caught, my mind gets caught in different ways. 
we have to have some sense. And initially, it's just going to come from right information until you have enough experience, direct experience from your practice. You know, so just from hearing it from a teacher or reading it in a book, that what we're looking for is a way to understand, a way to relate to or hold this human predicament. How to relate, how to be with the mental patterns that we have. How to be with the the physical sensations, the physical experiences that we have. How to be with humid weather that we have. Or any kind of phenomena that can come. It's so amazing that, uh, you know, in different ways, our heart, our mind has been burdened, has been dissatisfied, has been heavy, and yet we don't really know that experience so directly. I'm sure we've all looked, noticed that we're suffering at times. But mostly we're so distracted by trying to avoid the feeling. We're afraid of actually feeling when we're hurting. We're, we're in a way, we're afraid to feel that. We somehow think that feeling, like when we're suffering, feeling that we're suffering would be dangerous, like it might break something. Even though we're still suffering, but it somehow, doesn't it, it seems safer not to feel it not to relax with it. It's like, uh, you know, a gross example would be when we're sick and we find ourselves like wanting to keep really busy. Or one of the classic things to do when you have a bad cold is with your last bit of energy, you get, well, back when they used to have video stores, you'd get yourself to the video store and you'd get, you know, 10 movies. You figure, okay, this flu is going to last for a week and you know you just you get your stuff and you're just going to go unconscious and put in your time until the body kind of writes itself and then you can be a, a human being again something like that and it would never occur to us like to to be at home sick and to actually like get interested like really wanting to be there with the experience of being stuffed or the experience of having a headache, or whatever it might be. But the one thing that, um, that that proximity to difficulty does for us is it clarifies our aspiration. Oh. Because we have to really see that the uh, the burning, the dissatisfaction isn't so much the pressure in the head or the sore throat. It's the hating it. So one of the first things that, you know, in terms of our effort and the way that effort, right effort, aligns or works with aspiration is it's like uh, the the pledge that 
I don't know, maybe they still do, that doctors make, you know, to do no harm. Well, we need to make that same kind of, have that same kind of resolve. Like, we may not know where real happiness is or how to bring about real happiness, but all of us, you know, even real beginners, we can definitely engage practice at this level of this commitment to do no harm. So as I show up in my life, show up with this mind, this body, this life situation, I'm tracking things with awareness, with mindfulness, in order to practice doing no harm. So there I I am with my cold, just to use that example again, uh, with my sore throat and the pressure in my sinuses and or with the humidity, you know, maybe you're somebody who doesn't like the humidity that we have today, and evidently it's going to get cool tonight. Give you something to look forward to. But so there we are with our particular difficulty, and we're just tracking it. Yeah, the humidity is unpleasant. The pressure in the head, the sore throat, it's unpleasant. The bad back, that's unpleasant. But we're tracking the experience with this this uh, profound resolve to do no harm. I may not be able to control my life, but out of compassion, out of this deep connection with this life right now, this life as it is right now, I resolve to do no harm. So there we are with the sore throat, and if our mind starts to proliferate around how it isn't fair that I got sick, or I can't be sick now, I have so much to do, and then we see it's getting worse. The experience of suffering gets worse when we start to proliferate around it. And because, and because we're tracking it with awareness, with mindfulness, we see, oh, I'm making it worse. But I resolve, I'm resolved not to do that. So we experiment. Like, how can I stop making it worse? Many of you know this, you know, this teaching, the Buddha used this very striking simile of the second dart, being a human being, having a body and mind, naturally, unavoidably, we get stuck with darts. Difficult things happen. No way around that. But the habit, because we're deluded, our habit is to stick ourselves with another dart because we have a dart. (laughs) Yeah, I know, it's pretty graphic. But to see that's exactly what we do. You see somebody, something as simple, you you come into the meditation hall and you've just got a blanket, you know, and some little fuddy-duddy pillow and you see somebody who's got a coordinated set. (laughs) And you think, and it's, it's amazing how just seeing that the mind can start to proliferate, can start to think in ways that it's literally like taking a dart and sticking ourselves. Or you might come here and you just you see people in their kind of practice mode, sort of with their awareness internal, 
And it brings up some deep fear, you know, like, oh, I should have come here. This is not what I'm, it's a nice, my, probably the last nice summer weekend. <laughs> and I'm going to be here sitting in this cave-like room, <laughs> crowded, you know, with my painful knees. And, uh, and if the mind has that thought, it gets identified with the thought, proliferates around that thought, it's literally like we're, you know, sticking ourselves over and over again in so many different ways. And then, of course, we notice we're stabbing ourselves with the second dart and we start to think about how stupid we are to be doing that, which is the, just more of the second dart. And that's the, the problem. And then even it, it gets even more perverse. Like we may think, okay, I'm going to stop sticking myself with the second dart. And even that kind of repression or like uh, fear of sticking ourselves with the second dart is its own second dart. And you see, this starts to clarify our aspiration. So remember, I, I didn't go into great de- detail, but the aspiration isn't about becoming, isn't about fixing, it's about understanding. We just want to understand. What do we want to understand? Dukkha and the end of Dukkha. Liberation isn't something we can do ourselves. Freedom, happiness actually isn't something we can do ourselves. All we can do as an ego, as a person, is we can understand better how it is. That we can do. And then the rest, surprisingly, takes care of itself. We put all of our investments in understanding. Understanding what? Understanding the direct moment-to-moment experience of contraction, the energetic, or what we call mental pain, energetic contraction of the mind or heart, and its release, the non-contraction of the mind and heart. We're understanding it uh, conditionally, like how it becomes contracted, how it becomes released. So that's why there's such an emphasis on continuity of awareness, because if, we, if we're really going to get how it becomes contracted or how it becomes released, the mind has to be tracking the mind. We have to be tracking it as much as we can through the day. Now think about the effort that's required to track the mind. It's not the same as the effort to scrub pots. I, that was my yogi job for the first four days. You know, where there's sort of, I, I don't know about you, but when I have a job like that, it's like, you know, my mind just sort of immediately goes to work to sort of figure out the most efficient way so I can get this noxious thing done and get to something better. I mean, I, I kind of see it now at least. But that sort of approach to effort, like, okay, effort is something you do to get to the promised land. So I've got to do this terrible thing called effort in order to get to the promised land. But, you know, there isn't a promised land. And that idea, you know, that I'm going to do effort to get to the promised land, that's a second dart. Because <laughs> it never ends. You know, there's always more to do. 
even if there isn't more to do, there's always the next day and the next time for your yogi job or whatever it is that you don't like to do. So now we're thinking about right effort in terms of tracking the mind. We're just observing contraction and release. Now that actually isn't a huge burden. It's not easy, but it's really simple. It's not easy because generally the mind's not balanced enough to notice something that subtle. Uh, you know, there's just too much distraction and and um, the mind's getting pushed and pulled in different ways because of its attachment to desires. So that's why it's not easy to track the mind and to observe when there's contraction in the mind and when there's release. But it's not a heavy-duty thing to do. It's actually a very light, subtle thing, tracking the mind like that, being interested in understanding how it is in the mind. That's all we have to do. It is such a relief that we don't have to be good. I'm going to say this again, because for at least half of the people in this room, you know, maybe three-quarters of us, we have a heavy-duty trip about being good. A lot of people who are interested in being good get attracted to spiritual organizations because they think that's how they can become good. (laughs) And by the way, that's a second arrow, isn't it? (laughs) Having to be good. (laughs) As opposed to what? Bad. And, you know, that's just another way of dividing the world up into good and bad. And sometimes we're at the bad end of the stick and we hate ourselves. And sometimes we're at the good end of the stick and then we hate other people for not being as good as we are. In any case, it's a lot of darts (laughs) over and over again. So it's not about being good or bad. It's about the aspiration to understand dukkha and the end of dukkha and understanding how to make wise effort that supports insight, deepening understanding of dukkha and the end of dukkha. So the reason we don't need to be good is because we want insight into dukkha and the end of dukkha. So when we're not good, when we're being bad, then that's a perfect opportunity to have insight into dukkha. When we're being good, then it's an opportunity to have insight because good by definition, good doesn't make any sense unless good means no dukkha. You know, If you're good and you still have dukkha, mental pain, who wants to be good? <laughs> you know, So the good we really want is to be the heart released from the mental pain that can be released. That's what we want. That's our aspiration. But the practice, the effort, is to understand dukkha and the end of dukkha. Because it's the not understanding dukkha and the end of dukkha that perpetuates dukkha. The proximate cause for darts is not understanding what's going on. So that, that's why we don't try to be good. We try to understand. We want to understand. And that already is so liberating. To go from needing to fix or needing to be a different human being or a different kind of being 
just needing to understand how it is for us in this moment because that's doable what's not doable is to be in this moment to be different than what we are because we're already this whatever we are in this moment so to have this idea of effort I have to make the effort to be a different human being to have a different lived experience than I'm having right now that's a setup that's a second dart so much of the suffering that Buddhist practitioners experience is called wrong effort. It's unavoidable. We're all going to do it. We've all done it. Some of us who have been practicing longer than others, we just have more experience with wrong effort (laughs) than those of you who are relatively new to your practice. Once one of my teachers, Joseph Goldstein, says, that looking back, and he had been practicing for 30, 35 years or so at the time when he said this, he said, looking back over the course of my practice, these decades of practice, what it really comes down to is a deepening understanding of right effort. What kind of effort is skillful? So it would be the effort, you know, as I'm framing it, it would be the effort that leads to a deepening of understanding a deepening understanding of dukkha and the end of dukkha. So, there is no right effort unless there is some thread of wisdom, some thread of discernment that's recognizing the experience of dukkha or the end of dukkha. You cannot make good effort unless you're also in the moment, right there, as you're making effort, like to be with your breath, for example, bringing the attention back to the breath, there's no way you can do any good for yourself bringing your attention back to the breath if the mind isn't at the same time discerning the experience of dukkha or no dukkha. Because otherwise you could be bringing your attention to the breath in a way that's creating a lot of mental tension, right? How many of us have done that? How many thousands of breaths I've observed in a way that has been creating tension? Because I thought I was doing the right thing, but I was actually applying wrong effort. I was stabbing myself with the second dart. I was, my effort, my practice, my attempt to be a good meditator was the cause of dukkha. There's nothing more insane than that. But I don't think it's avoidable. But at some point, because of the right information, because we're getting prompted like you are now, we are now, we're getting prompted to maintain a thread of understanding of the experience of dukkha and its cessation. Is there mental tension? Is there mental pressure? Is there mental resistance? Is there mental friction? Is there mental weight? Is there mental hardness or dullness or heaviness? Numbness. And is it getting worse or is it releasing? So there we are because we've heard, you know, bring your attention to the breath, connect and sustain attention with the breath. And then we're noticing whether that 
burden in the mind is releasing due to this effort to bring the attention to the breath or becoming more heavy? And if it's becoming more heavy, the question should arise, what's wrong? What am I not understanding here? What am I not seeing here? Why would I be doing something that is causing mental tension? Now sometimes the wise effort we make in practice makes things intense. For example, you know, I could be feeling a lot of strong sensations in my body and it feels wise to make the effort to be still and not to just move my body in this particular instance. And then that could make things really intense. But intensity if it leads to the deepening of understanding, is liberating. And this is important to hear because just because something is intense doesn't mean it's causing more suffering. Sometimes the, as the intensity is building, right in line with the buildup of the intensity, you know, like it can be quite intense when we have strong physical sensations, but we're remaining relaxed and still with them, it can get quite intense. But the liberating part is realizing the mind or realizing the heart that can be at ease with this intensity. That's liberating. That feels enlivening. The mind, the heart, feels enlivened to realize that it can be okay with something that is strongly unpleasant. Wow. Wow. Because the mind always generalizes. So when it, when it realizes that it doesn't need to be afraid of this strength of, of unpleasantness, it, it sort of begins to beg this question, or there's this intuition, maybe I don't need to be afraid of unpleasantness. Maybe I don't have to be caught in this sort of cycle of fear of the unpleasant and attraction to the pleasant. So the mind begins to intuit like a a way that's beyond pleasant and unpleasant, being driven by pleasant and unpleasant. And that deepening of understanding of dukkha and its release came just from the mind being interested and being still with the intensity of unpleasant physical sensations. So I just want to say a few more things about this first step. Tomorrow I'll talk about purifying, more directly purifying our view. But initially, our practice, the most important thing to remember is this deep commitment. And you might even want to just right now say it in your mind, in the silence of your mind. Feel it in your bones, you know, this deep commitment. To, I, I really don't want to do any harm. I can say without any doubt in my mind that I don't want to stick another dart. Because of not seeing things, because I'm misperceiving, misunderstanding, I don't want to keep stabbing myself with another dart. Been there, done that. I'm really ready 
to take refuge in the deepening understanding of this process of sticking myself with darts and then not sticking myself with darts, right? That's dukkha and the end of dukkha. The end of dukkha is just the not sticking ourselves with darts. That's the liberation. It isn't, we think about it, you know, because we have this cultural, you know, archetype of transcendence, heaven, and so we think about liberation or enlightenment. Even the word enlightenment isn't really a Buddhist word. The Buddhist word is cessation. But the early translators, you know, coming, I think a lot of British scholars back in the 1800s, you know, they were into the word enlightenment and they wanted to, you know, we always see things from our own worldview. And so they saw Buddhism with their own worldview. So they thought, oh, cessation must be enlightenment, the transcendence of the world. But it's really the cessation of greed and aversion, delusion in the mind. It's the cessation of stabbing, that the, the, the neurotic stabbing of ourself, the neurotic clenching of the mind, tensing of the mind due to, um, as a result of certain experiences or misunderstanding certain experiences. So we make this strong resolve not to make things worse. And and I'll just mention, and I'll come back to this in the guided sit tomorrow morning at 8.30 after breakfast. I'll give some instructions each morning for sitting practice. But there are you know, three avenues, basically, to uh, protect the mind sort of act on this resolve not to harm. One is to consciously reflect on the compassion or the love that that resolve comes out of. Like when we resolve to wish to do no harm to ourselves or others, where would that resolve come from if not compassion, a tenderness of the heart, a care about suffering? So that's something creatively you can come back to. You can come back to that love, that basic compassion for your well-being, for others' well-being, not wanting to add to suffering. We might still do it. We still might think in ways, react in ways that create tension. But just that resolve to not do it as best we can, that's a beautiful thing. So just to reside there is already healing, isn't it? To just remember that I really don't want to add to my mental suffering. I may do it because of, you know, getting caught in patterns that have a lot of momentum, but I really, I'm resolved because I care about this life. I'm resolved not to add. Another healing practice that really helps us not to um, make things worse, to learn to take refuge in neutral experiences. When walking, just walk. I mean, it's so easy. And you can basically make this your mantra, just change the word. 
When walking, just walk. When brushing your teeth, just brush your teeth. When eating, just eat. When breathing in, just breathe in. When breathing out, just breathe out. When feeling the body, just feel the body. So there's something so protecting about grounding in the neutral reality of the present moment. Whatever it is, it doesn't matter what it is. When seeing, just see. You go out, look at the stars. When seeing, just see. So feel free to use that as a protecting, healing mantra. When walking, just walk. So you're just naming what it is you're already doing and you're grounding, you're sort of letting the attention, the awareness pour, settle, sink into that reality as a refuge. To keep, to sort of, it's like a way to prevent the extra darts because the mind is being given something to do and when it's doing that fully, walking, just walk, it doesn't have any space to think about a dart and then stick ourselves with it, you know, like to judge ourselves, to hate ourselves, to hate somebody else, to compare or to judge somebody else. So we have the reflection on our compassion, that we have this resolve not to do harm. We have this capacity to ground in the ordinariness of experience. And then maybe the third thing you can do, like when you've really seen yourself sticking yourself with darts, like obsessive thinking about something, and you really get it in your bones, this isn't helping, this is just hurting. This is just a dart being stuck in over and over. Then uh, practice letting that, like, um, kind of powerful or super parental energy arise, like the, the sort of earth grandmother sort of manifesting, you know, like you see some of these, um, I don't know about your grandmother, but my grandmothers, you know, they were like earth, they were sort of low to the ground and big, you know, <laughs> and competent. We both grew up on farms or raised their families on farms, both had Ten kids, um, you know, on difficult lives, and uh, so that kind of strength, you know, that grounded strength that sort of has seen life, and it's like, no, I'm not going to do that anymore. You know, that sort of parental energy that says, I'm not going to let you do that again. I'm not going to let you go back there and think that thought again worry that worry again, plan that plan again, judge that person again, hate, you know, me again. I'm not going to do it. So this is the practice of restraint. And again, you see, it only works if it's coming out of that love, that sort of grounded, earth-like quality. You know, like nature... Nature can be destructive, but nature has also this uh, sort of very powerful nurturing quality. Like get between a, a mother bear and her cub, and you see the power of nature to protect. 
that power is in us too. We're not any different than a mother bear protecting her cub. So we, we can sort of draw on that energy when we see the mind gravitating toward destructive behaviors over and over again. Then just basically look and see, is that powerhouse grandmother available? And let her manifest. Kind of surrender to that strength, the strength that understands this isn't helping, this is destructive. I'm not going to let this happen. So those are just three ways to practice not letting things get worse. We have love, we have grounding in the present moment, when walking, just walk. And you can use this image of, and you, you know, be creative about the image. I just sort of shared a little bit from my own, like how I might work with it, but uh, like how to tap into that natural f- protecting force, kind of drawing the line in the sand. Because sometimes, you know, Buddhism isn't just this sort of passive approach. It's not passive at all. It's, it's both receptive and assertive, equally receptive and assertive. It's just the important thing is that the assertiveness is coming out of nature, is coming out of clear seeing, not out of uh, desiring or the uh, craving. So that, that force comes from really seeing how destructive the particular pattern the mind is caught in. So if you want to activate the super-grandmother, you have to really see how destructive the particular pattern is, like how it doesn't need to happen. It's not helping. So I'll leave it here for tonight. And we'll pick up the topic again tomorrow. Let's just take a, a few moments before a walking time just to let the words settle. Take a breath or two together. So our noble silence begins now, but if you haven't met your roommate, feel free to connect with him or her in the room quietly. Um, And also, uh, so we'll have walking time, but if if you need to sort of put your stuff away, feel free to do that as well. Elena, I think there's some handouts on walking meditation and loving-kindness practice. Maybe we can put those out for people who are relatively new that might want those instructions. 
I'll meet with people tomorrow morning who want some more instructions about walking practice, practice. Um, and Elena will put those out under the bulletin board. So if you want to read about walking practice, you can do that. And we'll come back at 9 o'clock, do some chanting, and have a 30-minute set. Thanks for listening, everyone. <laughs>